So Mbunisi and the elders of one tribe on behalf of Sue and I, what a joy to be back in this amazing community. Uh, you don't know this, but I have country membership in this church. I, uh, I, I bribed the elders, and uh, it didn't cost much at all. They just very easily are persuaded to actually take anyone. So if I can make it into this church and you knew, you also can be very easily welcomed. Uh, I want to speak to you this morning as on leadership as a song. And we've had the first stanza. And it's beautiful to see a church graced with this grace that comes from Jesus as he uh, sets apart, as he appoints servant leaders in the church, uh, not to reward faithfulness as much as to light a fire under the forward movement of its mission to take ground in the kingdom of God. What a joy it is to be witnessing that. And there's a promise to the deacons uh, in 1 Timothy 3. It says, those who serve well achieve a good standing for themselves. That's like a confidence about my reputation before God and before man. You serve as a deacon. You can put your shoulders back. Now, everybody can do that if you just serve Jesus. But there's a sort of an extra uh, uh, weight of that upon your life. Life, And it says you have great confidence to walk in the faith that is in Christ Jesus, the anointed, our liberating king. There's something about how that recognition doesn't reward, it commissions you to, to lead and to love with a fresh passion. I've recently uh, been reflecting on why it is that people join churches. And I remember about 30, 40 years ago, meeting a leader, and I asked him the question, Dudley, what's the number one reason why you would join a church, or for that matter, why anyone should join a church? And I'm so glad that you are also asking this question today. The number one reason, he says, that people should join churches is because they've witnessed the quality of the life and the character of its leaders. And I know you're saying, Rigby, where's the Bible verse for that? Well, I'm so glad you've asked that question as well. Because Hebrews chapter 13 and 17 says we're to uh, uh, imitate the faith of our leaders. Isn't that interesting? That the leaders are not just up there to get the mic, to exercise authority, but they to live a certain kind of life that is compelling. That I look at that leader and I say, wow, I know I'm trying to follow Jesus, but like Paul said, follow me as I follow Jesus. And so we're looking at leadership as something worth emulating. We're looking at people who stand before God's people with a certain kind of grace a certain measure of maturity. And I think right now in the body of Christ globally, it feels that the focus on church leadership is back on character. It's back on discipleship. It's not about being high-powered uh, 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 influencers. And so when we read this passage of Scripture which is God's timeless wisdom 
for leadership in the church. And what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to use this passage we read from 1 Timothy chapter 3. You've already uh, had some teaching on deacons, but I've put together a kind of a matrix of all the qualifications for elders, for deacons, from 1 Timothy 3, from Titus, and also from 1 Peter chapter 5. And I've grouped them together. We're not going to go through all of that, but I can see you'll be exhausted. But what I have done is I've categorized it. And the category that I'm trying to heat up for us as followers of Jesus are essentially marks of spiritual maturity. And folks, I want to ask you another question. What do we need more in the church today? Leaders or disciples? Both. But where do our leaders, our best leaders, where will they emerge from? They will emerge from disciples, followers of Jesus, who are evidencing the transformed lives, who are servant-hearted, that have said no to big ego models of leadership, who've said no to seeing a leadership as a means to control resources, people, all of that. We've got to get back to what we're going to read this morning. And at the end of each categorization, I'm going to ask a question. What is the gospel discipleship angle on this particular category? And I'm hoping to provoke some, some thinking for us. This tribe will become all that God wants it to become, this community, not because of a single leader or a whole lot of great elders, and we're recognizing deacons and elders today, it'll become that because they represent a, a, a bar. They represent a standard of spiritual maturity. They represent a beauty of what it means to follow Jesus Christ in the 21st century where people are captivated by lesser things than Christ's glory and grace. You can come to my 70th birthday party. In, I know you're thinking, I wonder how old this guy is. You can come to that in about 20 years' time. <laughs> so let's read. You can follow on the screens or on your devices or in your Bibles. 1 Timothy 3. The saying is trustworthy. That's like bank on this. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires, has this desire to the office, of an overseer or an elder or a pastor, which comes out in other Greek language. He desires a noble task. I want you to see it. Yes, it is about character, but it's about bringing your character to a task, to work. You desire a noble, a significant role. I heard a guy years back say to me as a young emerging pastor, if God calls you to be a pastor, don't stoop to be a king. This is a high, noble office. Therefore, an overseer or elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children Submissive, for if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit 
and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. And then just to capture something of that component of leadership as a song, not a power play, it's music in the kingdom. When leadership functions like it should, it's one of the most beautiful things. Follow with me this verse on the screen, Judges chapter 5, 1 to 2. The armies of Israel have just conquered the Canaanites, and they're up and down. They are going through topsy-turvy, you know, two steps forward, three steps back as a nation. But every now and then a judge emerges who represents God and turns things around, but usually just for a, a short period of time. And the song is sung, and uh, Deborah is the main singer. Barak is also kind of included as the author of the song. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. Now, you've got to get the tense here. Something's going on here. That they did this. Because the track record is no one's been doing anything like this. Wow. There was a dirge. There was a lament. Life is not working like it should. And that can happen in the 21st century, in COVID times. And we've got to get the song back. And part of what good leadership does is it brings the joy of being a community by playing in position, by making the gospel the central theme of life. And listen to these words, that the leaders took the lead in Israel. Wow, what a surprise. Even better still, the right kind of leaders, what do you get? And the people then offer themselves willingly. One tribe, that's what we want. We don't want a church of leaders. We want a church of disciples who are both leading and following. And then it says, bless the Lord. That's the song part. That's the music. That's the crescendo. Wow, isn't it worth shouting about and giving the Lord a hand? I want to just encourage those two of you that were excited about this. You get a free cappuccino, just the two of you. Okay. And so, the little quote is, we can think of the relationship between the leader and the people, people who are leading and the people who are following, as that of a conductor and an orchestra. The conductor must lead and the orchestra must be ready and willing to follow the conductor's leadership when the conductor does his job and the orchestra does their job. Then beautiful music is made. But what you'll never find in an orchestra is a whole lot of people just folding their arms and watching. We're all, as followers of Jesus, called to be part of the mission of Christ in and through this community that God has joined you to. And so I hope you're getting by now that the church is not led by movers and shakers. I believe in strong leadership. I believe in spiritual authority. But what we bring is the fragrance of Christ to every moment. And in the church in Ephesus, where Paul is writing to Timothy, there was false teaching and pagan practices, just like there is in Cape Town and here in Nairobi. And they've been getting a stronghold, not just in the culture, but the culture is starting to get a footprint in the church. And Timothy needs to put people in positions of leadership that will safeguard orthodoxy, 
that's right doctrine, and orthopraxy, which is right living. And this is for the sake of the spread of the gospel and for the arresting of heresy. What you believe affects the way you live. And so we see now in this qualification of leadership, what, what struck you by that list? What was the most amazing thing in that list of qualifications? What has you mesmerized? What do you, you can't wait to get home and just say that one thing that stood out for me, I'll, I'm, I'm just going to speak on your behalf. Probably nothing. The most remarkable thing about that list of biblical qualifications for elders, according to D.A. Carson, a North American theologian, the most remarkable thing about that list is because is that it's so unremarkable. Now we've got a problem, haven't we? Because who wants to sign up for what's unremarkable? Unless you begin to see the beauty and the wonder of not the parts, but this whole. It represents the head of the church through Paul, by the Holy Spirit, to us saying, I'm not as impressed by the stuff you're impressed in in your culture. I want you to recover the power of ordinary, seemingly ordinary. Because when it comes together in this kind of person, this kind of leadership qualification, you get extraordinary. And that's because there's so few people aiming for it. And what you also get is because there's so few people aiming for that, you get so few discipleships wanting to emulate the faith of their leaders. Can you see this today is not just about deacons and elders. It's about all of us understanding when the leaders lead and the people follow. Praise the Lord. It's amazing. And so we're going to whiz through this sevenfold categorization of qualifications. And I want to ask that you see this. This is what sets the bar for one tribe's culture, its ethos, and its mission into the world from this community. It's what makes us distinct. It makes us counter-cultural. We are not an echo of our culture. Some churches are trying to be so cool that they bend into culture and merely become an echo of it. The church of Jesus Christ always stands as a unique entity. When churches get into bed with politicians, they get pregnant. When churches get into bed with culture, they get compromised. We've got to aim higher. We've got to see Jesus and that upward pull on our lives to something that is timeless. And that's the beauty of a moment like this. And so an elder has to be a, above reproach, which means they're being measured all the time. That's why we need to appoint leaders in the fear of the Lord. Hmm. They have to have an, a good reputation with outsiders. In other words, you're being watched inside and outside. And you don't jump through these qualifications as hoops. Tick. Oh, I've done that one, or I've done that one. No, what Paul is calling Timothy to identify is look for the people who are saying yes to the standard. Now look for those who desire that standard. Now look for those who evidence that standard. Now look for those who are pursuing that standard even when they are already elders. Because if they drop the ball on the standard, we drop the ball on the matrix for measuring discipleship. Not totally, but a large part of our discipleship is determined by the kind of people that stand as servants before the others. So number one, character qualifications. 
They need to be sober-minded, healthy grip on reality. They need to be self-controlled. They're not blowing a gasket all the time. They're taking responsibility for a certain kind, becoming a certain kind of person. They're not just trying to do all the right things. They're trying to become a certain kind of person for whom doing the right things becomes natural. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's a part of your character. They're gentle, not violent. We don't need warlords in the church. We don't need people who are blowing gaskets in the car park before they've even got into the meeting. Now, I know it doesn't happen in this church. I'm actually talking about that other church down the road. But they're gentle, gentle. Jesus, take my yoke upon you. Learn of me, for I am humble and gentle. What happened to gentleness for gentlemen and gentlewomen? What's happened to that virtue? Why have we been seduced to redefine strength as macho? You can't get more macho, eternally macho, than the God-man Jesus Christ who says, learn of me, be yoked to me, become gentle and humble in heart. He's sincere. There's a heart of this. It's the opposite of hypocrisy. Respectful or dignified. Someone you want to look up to and aspire to. Okay, big question. What's the gospel discipleship angle on this? Tells us that there are two frontiers that the gospel come conquers. And a church on mission is always trying to take ground for the kingdom out there. But the other frontier of the gospel is not in here. It's in here. And Paul is calling for leaders who are being conquered by the gospel in here. Better a patient man than a warrior. Patient, a warrior taking ground. Better a man who can control his temper in here than he who can take a city. Folk, it will not last if that city is taken by just leaders who, who are geared for conquest, but their inner world has not been conquered by the grace and the gentleness and the servant-heartedness of Christ. Family qualifications, husband of one wife. Now, we're not saying an elder has to be married, but if you are married, you're a one-woman man. And you, if you're going to elder the church, if you're going to wife, if you're going to husband Jesus' wife, the church, in service, you better be loving your wife as much as Christ loves the church. That's the standard. You're not an addendum to any, your husband's leadership role as an elder. You're brought into this because as he loves the church and service, you're invited in with this grace that God gives you to love the church with him and serve with him in a wonderful, beautiful, compelling partnership. Family qualifications too. Talking about the, the father in a household, he manages his household well. And folks, that doesn't mean he has to have a perfect track record. Don't bring that on to an elder whose kid who's got a free will decides to shoplift down the road as a naughty moment, which I did. And I know you're going to just like fall apart now all of a sudden. A few of you, most of you will say, wow, and God can use a shoplifter? Well, he took Paul, who was a murderer and a blasphemer, and turned him into a mighty apostle and put his grace and mercy on display. And that little guy that we want to start bullying because he fell in one moment. Listen, don't judge 
the elder and his wife and his family by the one mistake, judge him by how they treat that son. Do they bring the gospel to that son? Do they make him accountable? Do they discipline him in love and in grace? We are not moralists. We are lovers. He manages his own household well. Likewise, the wives, whether it's the wife of an elder or a wife or a woman deacon, couples are sort of encouraged to do this stuff together. I can't make a watertight case for it, but for 40 years, Sue and I have been in ministry together. 41, I lied, just in case somebody audits my character. And we have loved And in this season of our life, we love it more than we've ever loved, that we get to do this together. What a brilliant thing. What's the gospel and discipleship angle on this in a world where family is fractured? Elders are calling people to a new standard by their own example as fathers and mothers. And internally, the church get discipled by that, and we learn many people come to faith, join a church, just don't know what to do. The mercy and the grace of God, the gospel accepts us as we are, but it does not leave us where we are. It takes us on and matures us. And in terms of the gospel missional side, we become more and more that city set on a hill that people say, wow, Those families, those marriages, those kids, those programs, that sense of purpose, that sense of lighting fires in the hearts of the next generation. Wow, who are you guys? Where do you come from? Take me to your leader. Spiritual and moral qualifications. This isn't a a moralistic checklist. So many people, I've seen it, I've been around. They don't smoke, but neither do they breathe fresh air very deeply. They don't swear, but neither do they boast in poetry or prayer. They don't gamble, oh no, but neither do they risk with God to do glorious things in His name. It's all rather pale and round-shouldered. Princes and princesses still in prison. That's what moralism and legalism does. And so here's what Paul's calling elders to. They love what is good. They they live this morally excellent life. They're upright and holy. They have integrity in all their dealings. They're not intimidating with their stand on purity. They're winsome in the way they call people into it. They're not given to drunkenness or much wine, which means they, they're not forbidding everyone. They don't have a sheriff badge. You're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to do that. And we please everyone else. The Bible isn't doing that. And careful, you don't forbid what the Bible gives people freedom for. What you want to do is see what it's saying there. We don't want to be under the power of anything that gives a bad reputation to the gospel. And the elders in every local church need to set a cultural context for wisdom around what we should be doing to have a good reputation with the world. And then they temper it. What's the gospel discipleship angle of this? We've got to come back to making holiness and purity beautiful. It's called the beauty of holiness because it's supposed to be a billboard of what God does in people who used to be the antithesis of this. And we are evidence of God's discipling grace in our lives. 
Fourthly, intellectual qualifications. They should be able to teach basic skills of interaction, whether it's teaching your children or teaching a, a, a life group or teaching in a Bible college or, or parenting, imparting truth. They should be able to give an account for what they believe. They should be able to share it in a way. But they also need to hold, especially elders, deacons, key leaders in the church, they need to hold the deep mysteries of the faith with a clear conscience. What does that tell you? You don't have to be a doctor in theology, but you've got to be able to say, I believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have to be able to say, I believe Jesus was born of a virgin. I, you have to be able to say, I believe He died on the cross in my stead. You have to believe He was raised for your justification. You have to be able to say, He's coming back again, and He is the King of eternity, and He has the title deeds to the future of the universe, and He has the last word because He's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last and the beginning and the end. He rules and reigns, and we are submitted to Him, and He has given us this book called the Bible, and we're submitting our inquisitive minds to His wise. Uh, uh, wisdom, and if I don't understand things, I don't become a cynic. I worship Him because He has the authority over all things. What's the gospel angle on all of this? We're not a bunch of people who just say everybody to himself. We're all free to think what we want in our own minds. No, no. When you're following Jesus, you've surrendered your mind to the authority of Scripture, to His leadership. It's so compelling. Only in Christ do we answer all the big questions that face us. And so we're not irrational. We're not anti-intellectual. We don't live our lives by cheap little ditties. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. We, we go a little deeper than that. We say, God said it. Wow. Let's plumb the depths of this stuff. We love God with our minds. We love His truth, and we give our lives to celebrating it, singing about it. We give our, our lives to being transformed by His truth. Our minds are not bypassed. Our minds are involved as we learn to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, so our mind and strength. Financial qualifications. He's not a lover of money or he's not greedy. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, Keep yourselves free from the love of money because God said, never will I leave you nor forsake you. Elders are not greedy for dishonest gain, shortcuts, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. They are discipled by the teachings of Jesus. When Jesus says, it's impossible to serve God and money, he's not saying it's morally bad thing to serve God and money. You want to be an elder in my church, Jesus says, it's impossible to serve God and money. He's saying it's not impossible. You cannot serve God and money. It's just impossible because money is mammon in the, in the original language, and it forces a trade. It requires you to let go of God in some ways while this pretender comes along and starts to seduce us with all the false promises of bigger, better, faster. And what we're learning is Jesus is saying you can serve God with mammon, if you take it by the scruff of the neck and you say, I am going to use the fruit of my labor, I'm going to use the reward of my labor, and I'm going to direct it toward the forward movement of the gospel. And elders are committed to doing that. They are tithers. They are generous uh, in their lives. Fourth, th sixthly, 
relational qualifications. See, elders know the church is not about them. They know it's about the, everyone else except them. They're hospitable. Sue and I lead a church that grew to many thousands of people. We don't use those numbers. We want to know how we started that and why people are doing it still to this day. We started around our dining room table. I would be thinking strategically on how we would weave this couple into the mission and vision of church. And Jesus would, and, and Sue, like Jesus, would be just be thinking, let me just love these guys. You get on with that. I just want to love these guys. I want to just let them know they're welcome. And I'm opening my home and our heart and this dining room table and saying, come eat with us. Whatever comes out of this, I just love you. How often I've been rebuked by my overdeveloped sense of strategy. Folk, elders are hospitable. And listen, not just to all your members who maybe can give a little bit more to move the vision forward and increase your salary in time. I'm being naughty. No, the reason we want to be uh, hospitable is because it's with strangers as well. And the word strangers in the Greek is uh, um, xenophobia, is xenosphobia, fear of strangers. Hospitality is the exact opposite. It's the love of strangers, xenosphilia. They're not quarrelsome, not overbearing. These are kind of relationships, things that happen. That we're, we're learning to be way more loving and gracious and patient with people. We're not quick-tempered. We're not, we don't look down on others because they're young, and we don't have to be looked down on others because you might be a young elder. You, do, you just set example. It's discipleship language. Just set the standard. Just live in these teachings and people will say, okay, well, I was wrong. I appointed a young guy to take over our original congregation in Common Ground to lead me. I had such pushback. People came in and said, oh, he's too young. Oh, he doesn't have your wisdom. And I had to say to him, I think God's called him. And if you give him a chance, you will be surprised. I've had the same people all coming back saying, wow, God has fallen on this guy. Ryan Turmer says it. He's coming to you in November and he'll be a real gift to you. Hopefully. What an amazing man. Last tra uh, track record qualifications. He's above reproach and blameless. That's not perfect, but his heart is to be that. His heart is to be that. Why are you standing up and down? Just relax. He's not a recent convert. Why? Because you don't want the congregation to be after risking with a, a prematurely appointed elder because then the grace is not flowing from the elder to the congregation. The congregation is flowing from the, the congregation is having to find grace to say, oh, there he goes again. He's not mature enough. Oh, he's always talking about himself in the sermon. No, no, no. So we wait for the guy to mature, and the standard is telling us, be patient. You can be, there's a big difference between God's movement, identifying a person, and God's moment. And we've got to see the gap between the movement and the moment as discipleship opportunity, formation opportunity. But here's a big one. The elder needs to have a good reputation or testimony with outsiders. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that we don't only lead before a watching congregation. We also are leading before a watching world. It means we are engaging with people in business. We're not just shepherding our church. We're shepherding people who are not in this church, whether you're a paid elder or a non-paid leader, we have a heart for our city. And then it says, this last one, track record, they have to be tested. What's the criteria for testing? Everything I've been speaking about this morning. Servant-hearted, humble. What's the gospel discipleship language? 
or angle. What's, this, what's, what's Paul telling Timothy about track record con, uh, qualifications? He's calling us to long-haul faithfulness. He's calling us to long-haul impact and maturity and multiplication. Get this right. The gospel has a riverbed through which it can flow in power. And a good promise for the elders who are already elders, I want to encourage you through this, keep eldering. For, though, for uh, uh, Cephas Tependitsa, did I get that right? Just, you see, the grace of it, he says, I got it right. And some of you are saying, I got it wrong. Okay, I got it as well as I can. But a promise to the elders is that there's a shepherd's crown waiting for who? Those with the biggest church? Those with the best reputation? Those who are mover and shakers in the eyes of culture? No, the prize is, uh, will be given for how we've served by a great shepherd and his nail-scarred hand will be put on our shoulders and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. So when the Lead, when the leaders lead, when the people follow, give that woman the first cappuccino at the Cafe Show. There's music, but it's all of us together. Come on, when the leaders lead and the followers follow, 